morning. My name is Esther. Good morning. It's always good to be here with you all. So a while back, we took all our kids to the Monterey Bay Aquarium, where we made the interesting discovery that they liked seeing the free movies there as much as seeing the live animals. And what they really loved were these quiz questions that would come on before the movie started. So I thought I, too, would start with a quiz question today um, about the new sermon miniseries that we're starting. So just for today and next week, we'll be taking a look at the Old Testament passage that is the passage that is quoted or alluded to the most by the New Testament. So here's the quiz. What passage are we going to be looking at? Quiz question should be coming up. Thanks, Jake. So keep in mind, yes, there it is. Uh, this is kind of like asking how many gallons of water are in the aquarium or what you call a group of otters. You're not supposed to know the answer, so feel free to guess. So which Old Testament passage is cited most by the New Testament? And this includes quotations and also allusions. So raise your hand if you think it's A, the Ten Commandments. B, Psalm 23, C, Psalm 110, or D, Isaiah 11. Oh, cool. lots for Isaiah. So, great. Um, so it's not, it's not Exodus 20 or any of the law, actually. It's not Isaiah or any of the prophets. The most quoted Old Testament passage comes from the book of Psalms, and it's Psalm 110. There are at least 33 quotations or allusions to Psalm 110 in the New Testament. Jesus forcefully uses this psalm to explain who he is. Peter preaches the first Christian sermon on this psalm. The author of Hebrews, when describing the redemption that we have, goes back over and over again to this psalm. Now, the Bible the earliest Christians had would not have included the New Testament. They had the Hebrew Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, which means that this psalm would have been one of the most important bits of Scripture that they had. So we'll be taking a look at it over two weeks. Psalm 110 is unusual because it combines two things that were never brought together in the Old Testament, the king and the priest. So we're going to break that down by taking a look at Jesus as king this week and at Jesus as priest next week. Today we'll begin by looking at Jesus as king, then we'll look at two ways we respond to the king. So first, what does this psalm say about Jesus as king? Let's read the first two verses of Psalm 110. A psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. So in the Disney movie, Onward, there are two brothers and they're on a journey. They get to a place where on this journey they have to cross a bottomless pit. And the only way to do it is by casting a spell for a trust bridge. It's a bridge that's invisible. You don't know if it's going to hold you until you step out on it. So the younger brother casts the spell, walks up to the edge, takes a step, and falls because he didn't believe or whatever he was believing in wasn't enough to hold him. So he dies 
Just kidding, it's Disney, he's got a safety rope on. So the older brother pulls him up, he tries again, and this time the bridge holds. We all have invisible bridges, things we rely on to get across the bottomless pits of life. It's interesting to ask for ourselves or for the culture that we live in, when it comes down to it, what's that invisible thing that everyone's counting on, that everyone's willing to put their weight on in order to get where they want to go? For the Israelites, this would have been their king. Their king was their trust bridge. That idea may seem strange to us because we don't live in a monarchy, but back then, the king alone had the power to direct the nation for good or for evil. The king was what the people looked to to keep them from falling, to get them where they needed to go. He was their security and their hope. David likely wrote Psalm 110 to be used at the enthronement ceremony of Israelite kings, to be read when a new king was coming to the throne. For the people, that moment would have been like standing at the edge of a cliff, wondering if this new king's reign would hold them as they stepped across. And this psalm seems to assure them that he will. It talks about the king sitting, so sitting was a sign of privilege. <laughs> Kings and judges sat, not their servants or attendants. And sitting at the right hand was a position of power and prestige. The king has enemies under his feet, which was a symbol of victory. This painting shows a young pharaoh with a success that every mother hopes for. His feet are resting on a box filled with dead bodies. His enemies are his footstool. So it seems like this king's going to do pretty good. He's sitting at the right-hand spot. His enemies are under his feet. He's extending his scepter. But here's the mystery. This psalm is placed at a very odd place within the book of Psalms. So Psalms was written not only by the various authors who wrote each psalm, but by the editors who compiled them together, dividing them into five books. Roughly speaking, the first two books cover the time when David was king. The third book deals with the failure of the kings. The fourth book with the exile when the monarchy ended for good and the Israelites left the land. The last book is written for the post-exilic period, when the people, still without a king, return to their land to reestablish their faith. Psalm 110 isn't placed in books one or two, which really it should be as a psalm written by a king, about a king. Instead, it's placed in the post-exilic period, when the Israelites are standing in the ashes of their kingdom. There's no conquering of enemies. There's no power. They themselves have been conquered by the Persians, then the Greeks, then the Romans. So, like, why is this psalm here? Is it just so they can remember the old glory days? Maybe. Or maybe the placement of this psalm after all the human kings have failed is a sign that it is describing a king who is more than human. And that's how Jesus reads the psalm, the first time he quotes it in Mark chapter 12. Jesus has just entered Jerusalem riding a donkey and hailed as a king. He stands in the temple and quotes this enthronement psalm, only he uses it to point out that the king in the psalm is more than a human being. He quotes, the Lord said to my Lord, and then he asks them, 
If this psalm is foretelling a king who is merely David's human son, then why does David call him Lord? What does that mean? Well, if you look at the text in your Bibles, you might notice the word Lord is written in different ways. When it's in all caps, that means the Hebrew word there is Yahweh, God the Father. When it's in mostly lowercase, the word there refers to a human being superior to the speaker. If the foretold king is merely David's human son, David would have called him my son, not my lord. My lord is how you address someone above you. And this king sits at the right hand of none other than Yahweh. To be at someone's right hand was to be on the same level as them, to share the throne with them. So this king is a lowercase lord, a human being, but is also superior to David, and while not being God the Father, is in fact on the same level as God the Father. Who is this king who is human yet divine? We find out a few chapters later when Jesus alludes to Psalm 110 again, at the moment that he publicly affirms who he is for the first time. When Jesus is arrested in Mark chapter 14 and asked by the high priest, are you the Christ? He says, I am, and you will see me seated at the right hand. Jesus identifies himself as the king of Psalm 110, and he makes it clear that he is not just a human king, but a divine king. So here's the question for today. Do you live like Jesus is a divine king? Do you live like he has the kind of position and power that this psalm describes, not just on a human scale, but as God? I'll be honest, I really struggle with this. On one level, I believe that Jesus is king, but on another level, on a very real and practical level, I find myself living in a culture that's constantly bathing me in the belief that we are in control, that it's all up to us. It's up to us to make it happen, to have it all, to keep it together, to figure it out, to reach these outcomes. And especially around here where we have so many resources and so many options, our ability to optimize things for ourselves is virtually endless. If we're honest, the trust bridge we're walking on to get across the uncertainties of life is based so often on human effort and human understanding and is directed so often towards external materialistic outcomes. But it's when we're standing in the ashes of our human efforts. It's when, like the post-exilic Israelites, we see that they fail in the end. That's when we start to see the truth of this psalm. That's when we start to hear the question that Jesus asked the Jews. Does this not mean that there must be a God who reigns? It's not just up to us, and that's really good news. Jesus has come as our king, and the kingdom he came to inaugurate was not the external materialistic one that the Jews were hoping for. His kingdom is more about a power than a place, more about a reign than a realm, for he came to bring emancipation not from political tyranny, but from the tyranny of sin, the problem at the root of it all. And he does so by wearing a crown of thorns. 
Not long after he alludes to Psalm 110, Jesus willingly dies on the cross for our sins. Think about it. The divine king, who has all the power and prestige in the world, died the death of the lowest criminal for us. What do we do in response? If Psalm 110 is showing us that Jesus is the divine king, then what does it tell us about how we respond to that king? Let's read the rest of Psalm 110, beginning in verse 3. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power, in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. We see two things here about how to respond to God as king. First, we offer ourselves freely in service to the king. Verse 3 says, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. Our boys have joined my husband in becoming huge Golden State Warriors fans. This means I hear a lot of basketball talk, like how recently Draymond Green was suspended from a game for breaking some rules. Apparently, while watching the game from home, he realized that against this particular opponent, the team played better without him, something about Jordan Poole being put in his place instead, who is a better shooter, uh, resulting in spacing out the play because the opponent, opposing team had to spread out their defense. Anyway, Draymond Green notices this to the point that when he's allowed to go back and play, he asks the coach to bench him and start Jordan Poole in his place, even though he and Poole had fought in the past, apparently, because it was better for the team. In the Old Testament law, there were systems of sacrificial offerings, and the vast majority of them were compulsory. You made the offerings to follow the rules, like the first time Draymond Green set out, because he had to. But there was a special kind of offering that was entirely voluntary, called the free will offering. You didn't make the free will offering because you had to. You did it because you wanted to, as an expression of something you believed in like the second time Draymond Green sat out, because he had seen something, he had caught a vision, and he believed in the team enough to want to do it. The clearest picture we have of a free will offering is in Exodus 25, when Moses invites the people to help build the tabernacle. We read that people give all sorts of objects, some they had, some they made, and we read that they do it with willing hearts, with stirred hearts, with moved hearts. Giving a free will offering is the verb that is used in Psalm 110 to describe the response of the people to their king. They willingly volunteer to join his campaign at the risk of their lives, not because they're drafted, but simply because they believe in him. They have a vision of who he is, and they want to give everything they have, even at great cost to themselves, to help build his kingdom. So what does it mean for you to offer yourself freely? 
What does it mean for you to have such a vision of God's kingdom, to have such a consciousness of his reign and his purposes, for God to so govern your heart and your mind and your outlook that your life becomes a free will offering to him? Maybe it means you do something different, something that doesn't necessarily have a lot of external value in the eyes of the world, but is of great value in the kingdom of God. Maybe it means you do the same things, but in a different way, with a greater consciousness of doing it unto God, or in a way that expresses his reign in your life. Maybe you do it with a sense of surrender, even though it costs you to do that. What does it mean for you to offer yourself freely? Secondly, we respond by acknowledging the power of the king. So there's actually a third word that is translated Lord in this psalm, and it's here in verse 5. The word for Lord in verse 5 is not Yahweh, and it's not the word you use for a human being. It's a word used in the Old Testament only when addressing God. It's a general way of addressing God. So right here, this psalm is saying it is God who is at your right hand, allowing you to do all these things. Believing that God is king means believing that he has power, that he is the one who enables us and delivers us. I remember when we first moved here from the East Coast, I was like, I'm never letting my kids bike anywhere without me. Now I'm like, thank you God that our kids can bike because it's one less trip I have to make. At one point, one of our daughters was biking a fair distance to get to swim practice. She did it with a friend, and one day she came back and was like, Mom, you would not believe. There's this thing, it's called an e-bike. My friend has one, and she goes so fast on it, it's amazing. She let me try it out, and it's like you still have to pedal, but you go so much faster than you normally would. And of course, the next thing she asked was whether she could have one too. Sometimes we're like people who forget that we're riding on an e-bike. Like we're sweating, we're pedaling away, we're worrying, we're Googling, we're trying harder. When all along we're sitting on top of this powerful engine we're not even using. This is what Paul talks about when he alludes to Psalm 110 in the first chapter of Ephesians. Paul is praying for believers. He's praying for the church. And you know what he's praying for? He's asking that God opens their eyes to the immeasurable power available for us who believe, according to the working of God's great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him where at his right hand in the heavenly places. There's the illusion. Paul is like, this is what I'm praying for you, that your eyes are open to the fact that because Jesus is king, because he is reigning at God's right hand, he has power. And that same power is available to you right now. What would it look like for you to respond to Jesus as king by believing in his power? I think I would pray more and worry less. I would probably look at challenges differently. I would risk more. I would ask more. I would believe more. Maybe I would rest more and let go more. Responding to God as king means believing in his power. 
Sometimes we find ourselves standing on the verge of some chasm we have to cross. Maybe it's a period of transition or uncertainty. Maybe it's an obstacle or a loss. Maybe that chasm is just having to get out of bed and get through the day. (laughs) What is it you believe will get you across? If you're going to take one thing away today, let it be this. It is not all up to you, and that's good news. There is a divine king. His name is Jesus. He gave his life for you. And if you believe in him, he reigns in you. May we surrender ourselves freely to our King. May we experience His power in our lives today. Amen.